Good morning. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at uh, one of the essential balances of the Christian life. And we base that series loosely on one of my favorite uh, verses in the whole of the Bible, which comes in Acts 20, 28, where St. Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he says to them, uh, you've got to look after two things. You've got to look after A, yourselves, and B, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And the relevant flock for them was very much the church in which they were kind of in charge. But for us, the term might also include, say, our employees, our work colleagues, the class that we teach, our family, our sporting club, our friendship groups, etc., etc. Because Jesus said we're, we're supposed to be the light of the world. He not only said, I'm the light of the world, he said, you are the light of the world. We're, we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. So we must positively affect our environment and the people around us. He said we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So we must care for the people both in our church and those whose lives otherwise touch our own. But whatever our calling is in the world, there's always a particular duty of care for one's church. St. Peter teaches that the church is a building in which each one of us is, is placed as a living stone. If we don't take our place in the wall, supporting some and resting on others, then the building is diminished and we ourselves are without purpose. St. Paul sees the church as a body, which we're just singing about. Your bride will come together. As a body in which each believer is a part and correctly functioning, each one is beautiful in his own right, but is also vitally important to the body. But you cut those parts away from the body and we're merely the gruesome props in a schlock horror movie. We are body parts. A healthy Christian life is one of care for ourselves and the flock in that broad sense. And this morning what I want to do is to look a little bit more closely at what that care for self actually means in practice and how that affects our relationship um, with those around us. I want us to think about character, calling and gifting. Or to make it more memorable, slightly more poncy and theological sounding, character, calling and charismata. Our normal practice, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, our normal practice in this church is to teach through one book at a time. That way we maintain the kind of narrative flow of the way it was actually written, which is, you know, why would our plan be better than God's? But sometimes, like today, we need to take a topic at a time. Um, next, in a fortnight's time, we're going to be going uh, into Philippians, so we'll get back to our normal practice. But for these topical studies, the best I can do is to um, try and do what my maths teacher always used to say, show your working. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you what the biblical basis is for all the things that I'm going to say, but it's just going to be really quite quick fire as we go. So please excuse me doing that today. Um, then I want to finish up by illustrating from the life of Peter how character and calling and charismata worked out in his life. I want to apologize in advance for any here who are not familiar with the Bible. That's absolutely fine. Just try and uh, cling on to my coattails as I go, and you can ask me any questions you have afterwards. St. Peter opens his second letter with something of a paradox. Jesse was talking about this a couple of weeks ago. There are two truths that don't sit very easily together in our thinking. In verse 3... <laughs> he says... He is that Jesus' divine power has given us, has given us, everything we need for a godly life. In verse 4, he says, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. 
so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Yet, in verse 5, we see that human effort is still required to produce a godly life. Because he goes on, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to goodness self-control, and so it goes on. It's exactly the same kind of balance that Paul strikes in Romans 5, 2 to 5. In verse 2, he says, we have obtained access to the grace in which we now stand. But then he goes on to rejoice even in his suffering, suffering being entirely negative in its own, in, just on its own, but first, um, because, it, because it leads first to endurance, then to character, and so to hope. So he's rejoicing in a change. There's a progression here. There is spiritual growth. As we're going to see very soon in Philippians, we are to work out our salvation, even though Jesus has already freely given it. I want to show you a diagram now, which, uh, which is something that Jesse brought back from a recent um, Vineyard Worship Pastors Conference. And if you remember nothing else from today, please uh, take a good look at that. Uh, if you can see past my enormous bulk, and um, uh, and and try and try and remember that. It illustrates not only what is wrong with so much of the contemporary mindset of our culture, but also what can so easily go wrong with our thinking about the Christian life too. At the most obvious level, it clearly shows the error of becoming over-concerned with what we have, the outer circle. As Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, take heed, beware of covetousness, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Our wider society, with its rich lists, with its obsession with physical beauty and staying young, with its revolting talk of high-net-worth individuals, as if you're worth more because you've got more money. It falls consistently into this trap. But our Christian culture also, our subculture, has a marked tendency to value highly gifted individuals far above us ordinary folk. The guy with the amazing gift in healing or the the great teaching or, or musical gift will quickly become a Christian superstar. Meanwhile, those who quietly get on with what needs done often at great cost to themselves, remembers the widow, we remember the widow's might, they often go completely unnoticed. The chap who comes early to set up the hall, the girl who stays late to pack up the sound equipment, the couple who actually give a full tithe of their family income, these parts of the body, which Paul called less honourable ones, don't attract any attention at all, but they are just as important to the functioning of the body completely as much as, as, as vital as anyone with a public role. Some of us are less prone to get stuck at that level, but more at the second, where we value ourselves too much by what we do. At every single social occasion, uh, when we meet somebody new, one of the very first questions they're likely to ask you is, what do you do? Well, Mitchell and Webb have kindly produced some excellent teaching on this subject. <laughs> so I wonder if we could just dim the lights, uh, put the, pop the lights off for a minute, and we'll, uh, we'll just show you that. Oh, Lionel, glad you could make it. Can I get you a drink? Yeah, something soft. I'm driving. Parking's an absolute nightmare around here, isn't it? I have to reverse into the tiniest of spaces. Still, I managed it. I mean, parking's not exactly brain surgery, is it? <laughs> 
And I should know. Why is that? Are you a doctor? Careful. Not a doctor. I'm a brain surgeon. Big difference. Big difference. Yeah, I actually know a joke about this. What's the difference between a doctor and a brain surgeon? One's not exactly brain surgery. The other is brain surgery. Um, so, uh, what do you guys do? I'm an accountant. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I could do with an accountant. Filling in those tax forms can get really confusing, can't it? Still, it's not exactly brain surgery, is it? I mean, brain surgery, believe me, is very complex. Are you an accountant too? Uh, no, I work for a charity. Oh, that's a very selfless job, isn't it? I really admire you. I don't think I could ever do what you do. <laughs> I say that because it's emotionally draining, not because it's hard. I mean, it's not exactly brain surgery, is it? Which, as a brain surgeon, is what I do. Lionel, here's your drink. Lionel's a brain surgeon, you know. <laughs> yeah, he mentioned it. Jeff, they keep you late at the Space Centre. As always. Have you met Lionel? Uh, no, hello, Lionel. So, Jeff, how do you earn a crust? Uh, well, I'm a scientist. I, I work mainly with rockets. It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's pretty tough work. Um, what do you do? Well, I don't mean to boast, but uh, I'm a brain surgeon. Brain surgery? <laughs> Not oh, exactly rocket science. <laughs> well, I think that, that makes the point admirably. Uh, uh, how many of us place others and place ourselves in some sort of pecking order in relation to what we do? We might say, I am bringing up three fabulous children. But it can feel more like, I'm only a housewife. We might say, I go to St Andrews University. But it feels a little bit more like... I didn't get into Oxford. <laughs> or Cambridge! Or Cambridge! Oxford rejects, here we come. <laughs> Who we are... Do, do we know the Oxford rejects dance? Everybody? No, okay. we'll, we'll, do, we'll do that, we'll teach that later on. Who we are, our intrinsic value, is not defined by what we do any more than it is by what we have. In Matthew 25, speaking about the last judgment, Jesus warns that many who define themselves by what they have done, healing the sick, casting out demons in his name, etc., etc., will be in for a nasty shock. And at the same time, many who can't think of anything they've ever done to deserve heaven will be in for a wonderful surprise. Jesus didn't respect the righteousness of the Pharisees, great as it was. And when the time comes, he's not going to judge us merely on our outward actions. Yes, actions are crucially important in that teaching and judgment day. But it seems that what the Lord is really after are the actions that we're not even aware of because they spring instinctively from who we are on the inside. The uh, three concentric circles... Oh, good, they're back up there. The three concentric circles speak, of, first of all, of an inward journey perhaps principally in our devotional times with the Lord, what some call the quiet time. In the disciplines of silence and solitude, study, prayer, etc., etc., we first learn to press through the immediate concerns of what we have and what we don't have. Then we progress deeper through our preoccupations with doing in all its forms, what we have to do, what we have done, 
what we perhaps forever have failed to do. Then finally, we're able, if we dare, to delve deeper still into who we actually are. And at the same time as that, we're entering into the intimate presence of the God who waits at our heart to meet with us there. That inward journey is made in our uh, daily or more devotions. But it's also made over the course of a lifetime. Brother Lawrence, who was famous for practicing the presence of God, was once asked how he managed to maintain such a constant awareness of God's nearness. And his reply began, well, for the first 20 years it was really hard. Gregory of Nyssa was once asked by a desperate young man who thought he'd tried everything, how can I be perfect like my heavenly father, as Jesus teaches? And Gregory's conclusion was that our perfection in this life couldn't be seen as arriving at a point, but it could be seen as a total commitment to increasing in godliness. He said this, we should show great diligence not to fall away from the perfection which is obtain attainable, but to acquire as much as possible. To that extent, let us make progress within the realm of what we seek. For the perfection of human nature consists perhaps in its very growth in goodness. And as you might have noticed, he had a good scriptural precedent in 2 Peter 1 verse 8, which was up on the screen a minute ago. Where he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, my verbal italics, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as we shall see in Philippians, we don't consider ourselves yet to have arrived, but we constantly press on towards the higher calling of God in Jesus Christ. But in addition to the inward journey... This diagram also speaks of an outward force. Let's try and get it back up again. It's amazing. Thanks, chaps. Also speaks of an outward force. Jesus constantly taught that, for example, a plant is known by its fruit, by its outcome. That out of the heart flows every action, good and bad. That out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, etc., etc., Yes, we're going to be judged on our actions, but if we try and change our actions, we're missing the point. What Jesus is prescribing for our deadly spiritual illness is not the amputation of certain behaviors. It's radical heart surgery. God's famous promise in Ezekiel 11 and 36 is to take out of us our hearts of stone, which only produce death, and to give us hearts of flesh, which can produce life and health. And if, as Christians believe, that prophecy is fulfilled by the indwelling presence in our lives of Jesus, by his spirit, then we should be less afraid than I've been all my life to lift the bonnet, or hood if you're American, and have a look inside. And even if we do find that it's a bit of a mess in there, we should not therefore retreat to the outer rings, as I confess I've done most of my Christian life. It's much easier to lose ourselves in work for Jesus than it is to meet face-to-face -face with Jesus. That's why worship in the vineyard makes such a big deal about intimacy with God. It's much easier to bury our own personalities in the 
constant use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit than it is to engage with the Holy Spirit himself to confront in us what needs to be changed. For more reading on that, see Galatians 5 on the fruit of the Spirit. Many a famous preacher or healer have crashed and burned for precisely that reason. When I heard a couple of years ago admiring reports of a chap whose healing ministry had been non-stop, 16 hours a day for 10 whole days, I responded, then he's a fool. And so it proved. Just days later, the great man of God had left his wife and taken up with one of the female assistants. His once great ministry was gone, perhaps for good, just because he himself got lost somewhere in what he had, his undoubted extraordinary gifting. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are a wonderful thing, but they're not who we are. Who we are in a circle, the steadily improving core of our beings, where we feel ever more at home resting in God's presence. That should have its outflow into second circle, what we do in answer to his calling. And all of that should be empowered and enabled by third circle, what we have, our so-called natural gifts working in tandem with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We get it completely the wrong way around if we define ourselves either by our gift, I'm an apostle, or our calling, uh, I'm a church plant. Uh, The founder of the Vineyard Movement, a chap called John Wimber, was often, he's dead now, he was often called an apostle by other people. But he himself completely rejected that title because a million miles from how he saw himself. Many a a wonderful teaching I heard him give. He concluded with, what do I know? I'm just a fat man trying to make it to heaven. And then he would say, Holy Spirit come and all heaven would break loose. We don't have time to read it today, but before we come at last to our potted history of St. Peter, which I promised you at the beginning, let's quickly think again about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. The word of God, characterized as a seed in that picture, may fall on the fertile soil of a human life. And if it does, it's going to spring up and produce a great deal of fruit, which is itself capable of reproducing itself again, a further crop. And that's precisely the principle Jesus was talking about in the Great Commission when he instructed the Twelve to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to do the same thing. So they make disciples who made disciples who made disciples, and here we are today. But the seed might also fall on stony ground, where lack of moisture kills it, or on the path, where it gets trodden underfoot and the birds take it away, or among thorns that grow up and choke it. As we follow Jesus in our mission to make disciples, we too are like the sower, the great sower who is Jesus. We never know which seeds are going to grow and which are going to fail. And that's one lesson of that story. But equally clearly, every time we ourselves hear God's word, we are like the soil, receiving the seed. If we're living too much in circle one, what we have, I believe we're like the thorny ground, where in Luke's version of the story, the cares and riches and pleasures of this life grow up and choke the word of God. If we're living too much in circle two, what we do, we are like the hard ground of the well-trodden path. The next busy boots to come along the path are going to crush the seed, birds will eat it, and it's gone. And perhaps if we pay too little attention to circle three, who we really are on the inside, 
and who we're becoming, then we're more like the rocky ground, where the seed springs up quickly at the first drop of rain, but then quickly withers when the sun comes out. Uh, Luke's version, which you find in Luke 8, emphasizes particularly strongly that this is a heart issue. The birds are the devil taking the word specifically from the hearts of people, in verse 12. The problem with the ones on rocky ground, verse 13, is that they have no root. They're living on the surface rather than dealing with the rocks that lie below. The thorns, in verse 14, grow with the seed and choke it. Their roots go as deep and as near to the heart of that person as the roots of the good seed do. And if you are a gardener, you will know brambles as well as I do. Their roots actually go much deeper than the roots of any grasses and, uh, and grains. Then finally, the good soil of verse 15 are the people who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Fruitfulness is a heart issue. It's not a calling issue or a, or a gifting issue. Our three concentric circles relate intimately to character, calling, and gifting. My character is the I am circle from which everything I say and do springs. It's the core of my being, where I have the extraordinary privilege of hosting and enthroning my God. My calling resides principally in the I do circle, where I either obey God or not, where I show myself to be a Jonah or a Peter. And my charismata, my gifting, is largely in circle three, the I have, which enables me to carry out my calling and so fulfill who I am at the core of my being. Personally, God has given me some great gifts. I don't belittle that. But if my ego, if my sense of myself resides there, then I'm a buffoon. I can no more take credit for my gifts than I can for the house I live in or the car I drive. I didn't make those. God has given me a great calling over the last 13 years, planting this cracking little church. But if my ego resides there, I'm also a buffoon. I can't take credit for what's happened here, when most of it's been done by other people and by God himself. And in any case, where will it leave me when I retire next year? No, somewhere down beneath all that having and doing in my life, there must be a real person, someone I'd better meet and get to know sometime pretty soon. I must learn to resist all the cultural pressures of the age to live my life in what I have and what I do. I must learn to resist the even greater pressure of the Christian subculture to value myself only according to my gifts, my calling, my achievements heaven forbid, my many failures. That way, madness lies. We started out with Peter and his wise counsel to build a life partaking of the divine nature, one that starts with faith, as indeed it must, but which doesn't stop there by any means. Onto faith it builds virtue, then knowledge, then self-control, then steadfastness, then godliness, then brotherly affection, and crowning it all, simple love. Tradition tells us Peter wrote this as a very old man. And at the end of a life filled with calling and charismata, he seems to think that character is the most important thing of all. The famous encounter, first encounter between Peter and Jesus comes in Luke 5, where Peter and co. have been fishing all night long and caught zip. 
Then along comes Jesus, gets into the boat and insists on teaching from it uh, to a crowd, to a large crowd, for a considerable length of time. Peter learned then and there that Jesus simply has a way of getting into your stuff. And when he's finished, he tells Peter and friends to let down their nets. And immediately they catch such an enormous um, quantity of fish that their nets are breaking, the boat's nearly sinking, and they have to call the other boat uh, to come and help them get it to the shore. Peter recognises in this miracle both the awesome power that is present in Jesus himself, but also his own sinfulness. He says, get away from me, Lord, I'm I'm a sinful man. He realises something terrible which he assumes cannot be fixed about his heart, about his inner life. But then on the back of that very realisation comes the first great calling on his life. Don't be afraid, says Jesus. You've caught fishes up to now. From this point on, you're going to catch men, people. I wonder if you've ever wished that Jesus would keep his distance because you know what's in your heart. If so, you're in the best of company. And you too perhaps need to hear Jesus' unconcerned call to become fishers of men. Like Peter, you might need to leave your nets and follow him. Fast forward to Mark 5, verse 35 and following. By now, Peter, James and John seem to have been singled out for fast-track training. Only they are able to witness Jesus raising a teenager from the dead. We don't get to hear what Peter thought about it, but I think we can take it that he was impressed. We have to allow Jesus to show us what he wants us to see. So the only question is, how available are we to him? How closely are we following? Because the things he shows us have the power to change our heart. He only ever explained his parables to those who followed him. When all the crowds had gone away, were still hanging on. We have to stay close if we're we're to see and understand what Jesus is about. Fast forward again, Matthew 10. Jesus decides it's time to broaden the spiritual battlefront. So he gives the 12 a power to heal and to cast out demons. Then he sends them out to preach the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Open brackets, so sort your lives out, chaps. Close brackets. Gives them power to heal. He tells, tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the gospel. Off they go, and a few days later, they are amazed at what they've seen. Peter has answered the initial call to follow Jesus, but part of that following has actually become going ahead of Jesus as he sends. He doesn't only call to follow, he actually sends. Second uh, stage of his calling. He's called to proclaim the kingdom in precisely the same way he'd seen Jesus do. To do that, these guys needed some spiritual gifts. And I very much doubt they had any idea how those gifts worked, except what they'd seen Jesus do. Once we obey the call of Jesus, it has a way of taking us to places that we didn't expect and way out of our comfort zone, far beyond the reach of our own abilities. And that's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for. And as we speed through Peter's life, we could stop at many incredible miracles. Seeing thousands fed, walking on water, at least for a step or two, witnessing countless healings and uh, dramatic exorcisms, then the transfiguration on the mountain, where Peter wanted to build shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus to prolong the moment as long as he could. 
And then comes that sad moment of recognition when it all started to get real. Everyone started deserting, drifting away. And Peter suddenly blurted out, where else can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. And immediately on that follows the enlargement and clarification of Peter's calling again. You're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Wow. That's affirming slash worrying. But that's what Jesus does. Just ask anyone who's answered his call. And what about that slightly, perhaps less affirming moment when Jesus seems to be diluting things? He sends out 72 as he sent out the 12. Is Peter really one of the top 12 after all? Well, maybe not, because they all see spectacular success. Later on, it was good that he'd had that experience because we read in Acts that soon after the Holy Spirit came, the guys doing the most miracles were not the apostles at all. They were Stephen and Philip, two blokes they'd appointed to their storehouse ministry. So watch out for Morag. (laughs) All these ups and downs and many more form Peter's discipleship experience. But as his heart is changed, so does Jesus call him to more exciting levels of leadership. Fast forward again to the Last Supper. In John 13, Peter Peter refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. And when Jesus says that's, that's the deal for everyone who wants to follow him, Peter ends up asking for a whole bath. Again, he's realized something about his core unworthiness. And once more, he has seen that the grace of Jesus kind of overrides and overwhelms all of that. But even at that point, he still doesn't have the self-knowledge to prevent him swearing that he'll never deny Jesus. Just hours later, when push comes to shove, he repeatedly swears to others that he never knew Jesus at all. The impulsive, insightful man who walked on water. The heroic figure who, just hours before, had attacked a small army in defense of Jesus, as we read in John 18, is forced to confront his underlying cowardice. So he goes out into the darkness, if you remember, and weeps bitterly. And then his hero, Jesus, dies that most brutal of deaths. But God, through all this experience, is forming Peter's heart. Fast forward again to John 20. We find Peter once once again fishing with his chums. Jesus has risen from the dead. They've seen him a few times. But now he's not as available as he always used to be. It's disconcerting. And frankly, life's a bit boring. So Peter goes back, as many of us do, to what he knows. I'm going fishing. Everyone said, yeah, yeah, I'll come along too. Ask Peter three years before what he did for a living, and he would confidently have answered, fisherman. And he'd probably have punched your lights out if you dared say to him, it's not brain surgery, is it? (laughs) But ask him at this point, and what would he say? Sometimes the Lord withdraws. Sometimes he does things we find inexplicable and worrying. Sometimes it makes us question who we are. And sometimes that's why he does it. But in that encounter that follows, as Jesus meets them, repeats the miracle of the unexpected catch of fish, serves them up a barbecue that he's uh, prepared for himself, then asks Peter the painful three times, do you love me? In that encounter, Peter learns more again about himself than he has ever known. When Jesus asks us a question, he's not seeking information. He's causing us to seek information about ourselves. 
The two great pastoral questions in the Bible are, where are you and what do you want? But the question you most constantly ask of spiritual leaders, did we but hear it, is probably, do you love me? And when we say yes, I believe the response is always the same. Then feed my sheep. In this encounter, Peter becomes the man who, in Acts 2, confidently interprets to a potentially murderous multitude the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, preaches a sermon that converts 3,000 in a day. He becomes the man who, in Acts 3, in the absence of Jesus and with no specific orders, <coughs> almost on impulse, heals the lame man in the temple, unlocking a renewed healing ministry in this new dispensation. He becomes the man who then preaches salvation <coughs> to the same people who, are just a few weeks before, had been baying for Jesus' blood. And you might do the same again. He becomes the man who consequently gets nicked for a breach of the peace, fearlessly confronts the Jewish authorities, gets flogged within an inch of his life, threatened with death, and who responds by praying for more boldness to share the word of God. And so it goes on. He becomes the first man to breach millennia of protocol and take the gospel to the Gentiles. He sees much, he suffers much, and he remains faithful to his Lord. And he ends up the man who penned the very words we started with, called and gifted beyond what most of us will ever experience. He still values above all the transformation of the heart. You need the gifts, but that's just part of the package. You heed the call, but that's why we're all here. What matters above all is character, who we really are when push comes to shove. And Jesus has got ways of getting us there. The only question is whether we will cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the process or whether we resist it. And I'll leave the very last word to Peter himself. <clears throat> For if these things are yours and are increasing, they make you someone who's not idle or unfruitful, leading towards the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, would you come by your Holy Spirit now. Pray that you'll impart gifts to your people. We want to pray that you will call some even now in ways they've not known until now. But we offer ourselves to you <clears throat> as people who will develop the fruit of the Spirit people who will develop in who we are on the inside. We invite you to come and change our hearts. So we pray for that heart surgery. Maybe some here have never committed their lives to Christ. <clears throat>
I invite you when the others come forward for prayer, for healing and whatever else to come in, to come with them and dedicate your life to him today. You'll never look back. You'll never regret it. I believe some here are, are, are sensing God's call in a new way. Some are renewing their dedication to the calling that God has placed on their lives. Others are wondering how the call of Christ works with the life that they are living, the job that they do. Others are aware they've got stuck in the, in the shallow levels, in the I have and the I do, and they want to get through to the I am. Others, again, are just in other need, need for healing, need for help, need for prayer. I just invite you to, to come forward as the band starts to play, and uh, we will pray for you. So come, Holy Spirit. Amen.